Hello and welcome to the final episode of Backchat Series 2. I'm Natasha Livingston, the podcast's editor. This week, I sat down with Backbench Editor-in-Chief Daniel Clark and Editor Tom Mitchell to chat about how politics has evolved since the podcast began last September. We spoke about Trump's unshakable resilience, the resurgence of the Lib Dems and whether we're optimistic about the future. But before that, I thought I'd reflect on my time as podcast editor over the last seven months. Throughout series one and two, I spoke with journalists, politicians and academics, along with backbench writers and editors. The topics have been varied, ranging from dieting myths to the Israel-Palestine conflict. In series one, the episode Social Media's Hidden Mental Health Crisis offered an insight into the darker side of Instagram. I spoke to backbench editors Jess Insull and Lauren White about... Teenagers, 14-year-old boys were left telling people not to commit suicide because their parents and their support networks and their teachers weren't there for them. But we also found kindness in unexpected places. Those kind of people who are self-harming and things, there aren't actually that many people like around you who are doing the same thing and who are kind of willing to talk about it or even you might not even know they're doing it. So I think to go online and to be able to create this online identity and this this presence and find other people, they're finally being able to talk about it with someone who actually is able to understand exactly what they're going through and like it genuinely form a strong community from it. In a later episode, I spoke to Peter Grester, the journalist who was imprisoned in Egypt for 400 days in 2013. He spoke about the war on journalism and truth, but also described how he survived prison by creating a radio show. We found ourselves in prison alongside uh, most of the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, there was the Murshid, the supreme guide of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, in one cell above us uh, was uh, Hisham Khandil, the, the former prime minister. Um, across the, in the cell directly opposite us, we had Saeed Khatatni, the Speaker of the House. Um, and so we did what journalists would do. We, we uh, started our own radio show. We, uh, once lockdown had happened, everyone the, and the guards had gone. Everyone pulled their beds to, to the door and stood on, on, on beds and, and shouted out through the little portholes. And we'd conduct interviews and held some fantastic discussions. In Series 2, I chatted with Dr Victor Cha about Trump's second summit with Kim Jong-un. Being a former Bush-era official, Dr Cha offered interesting comparisons between the two leaders and correctly predicted that the summit would be a flop. Yet despite this, he remained optimistic. This time last year, I think there was a lot of concern that um, the peninsula was headed towards war. Um, and uh, at least right now, it doesn't look like that's the case. Um, President Trump for whatever reason, seems really committed to trying to do this diplomatically. Uh, and the North Korean leader has come out of his shell. So we'll have to see whether whether this combination is going to work. One of my favourite episodes was titled A Brexit Breakthrough, when three young people from across the political spectrum tried to agree on Brexit. I'm Ali Vali. I'm 20. I'm a student. Um, I'm a Conservative Party voter and I voted to remain in the last referendum, but would now vote to leave. My name's uh, Chris Vince. I'm a 35. Um, I'm a very happy secondary school teacher at the moment uh, because it's my last day today. I'm also um, a uh, Labour councillor uh, in Harlow in Essex and in the last referendum I voted to remain. So I'm Alicia, I'm 21. I'm a student at the University of Liverpool but I'm also the Liberal Democrat PPC in Liverpool where I work as a campaign manager. Hearteningly, Chris 
Ellie and Alicia managed to do a better job than Parliament and reached some consensus. But perhaps that shouldn't be such a surprise. With reports of our changing climate growing ever gloomier, Alabama banning abortion and Brexit continuing to drag on, it can feel hard to be positive. And it's true that the news can be depressing. So at the end of each interview, I asked each guest whether they were optimistic about their topic. To my surprise, most said that they were, albeit with a few strings attached. That's when I realised what tied all 30 episodes of Backchat together. Each guest was trying to change the world in their own way. Whether it was Marissa Cabus who created Crush the Midterms to help anti-Trump candidates, Euronews' Annalise Borges who told the real story of the Gilets Jaunes, to Sam Knights from Extinction Rebellion who glued his hand to a building for the planet. Each and every guest cared passionately. And that makes me optimistic. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. In the very first episode, we discussed whether the New York Times op-ed would be the end of Trump and debated whether Brexit could become any more of a mess. Have your opinions on Trump or Brexit changed since September? We should probably go with Trump first. Um, no, not particularly. I think he's still <laughs> pretty useless. I mean, the, I suppose the only saving grace is that we sort of had the Mueller report, which was so redacted that it sort of looks like the Change UK logo. But yeah. other than that, I think things have pretty much stayed stagnant. Um, I think the main thing that that's changed with both Trump and Brexit is that the ball is back in the court of their opponent, so to speak. As Daniel just mentioned, the uh, the Mueller report and Barr's interpretation is that pretty much means that it's, it's the onus is back on the Democrats to deal with and defeat Trump politically. Um, rather than just try and get him impeached. Um, and it's pretty much the same with Brexit. I think that, you know, the European elections, the People's Vote March has all put the ball back in, in the Remain Group's court um, to make the argument for staying in the EU. Um, and they've got to make the argument politically now rather than just complaining from the sidelines. Um, so I, th- I, th- I think it has changed in that respect. And I think there's actually quite a lot of similarities as well in that respect between Trump and Brexit. Um, but so far, I don't think either the opponents of Trump or Brexit are actually are actually seizing that opportunity. I think what's interesting about Trump is that when we talked about the New York Times op-ed, it was like, you know, is this going to be the final thing that pushes him out? And then with the Mueller report, it was the same thing. And then, you know, he's still here. Um, so I think we have to stop asking that question, really. Well, exactly. <laughs> I, I wrote a, um, I wrote an editorial for Backbench um, at the time of, uh, around New Year saying that I thought that the Mueller report was going to be basically was going to expose Trump and that was going to be the end of the road for him. Yeah. Um, but he's he's like Teflon, isn't he? Nothing sticks. He somehow <laughs> ducks and dodges and gets his way out of it, gets his way out of everything. Um, and he's done it again. I think realistically, he's now not going to be impeached before the next election. Um, and his opponents have really got to start thinking about how they can, you know, because he has such popular appeal in America, how they can combat that rather than trying to find some sort of back alley way um, to try and get him impeached or try and end his uh, presidency some other way. Yeah, I I do think, and I think I've said it before on one of the podcasts, that the thing that the Democrats keep forgetting is that Trump has still a really firm fan base. And all these people keep announcing as nominees for the election next year, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, next year. But they're not at, and whenever they put themselves forward, they either completely ignore Trump altogether or they criticise him. And neither of those methods are actually going to work in winning over his 
loyal fan base, really. Yeah, I think it's also quite hard to understand from a from a British perspective. He, he's not he's not British at all in any sense, um, and he doesn't appeal to British people. He's you know he's quite vulgar, he's brash, um, so it's really hard for us to understand how anybody can possibly like him. But I think America, the culture over in America is different. They do like that sort of statesman. Um, he fronts up perhaps a little bit more, um, and I don't condone Trump in any sense. But I think that. You know, people, as you say, people do often forget that he just does command a lot of support um, and you need to find some way to win back that support if you're going to defeat him. And you can't just assume that everybody, perhaps like us, thinks that he's useless or thinks that he's an idiot. Yeah, I think um, I think part of the problem is as well that Trump ran on a platform of, uh, ironically, as it's turned out in the past few years, we don't want anything to do with foreign affairs. This is, you know, I'm running to be president of America and therefore I will put the American people first. And, and on the domestic front, economically at least, it doesn't seem to be doing that bad. Employment is open, the economy is doing well. So if they can, if his fan base can ignore the fact that he's meddling everywhere, then I think they'll be able to forgive his indiscretions in foreign policy. Do you think he'll get re-elected? Yes unless somebody in the Democrats does something remarkable. And at the minute, I mean, you know, the biggest contender last time would probably have been Bernie Sanders rather than Hillary Clinton. But at the end of the day, as ageist as this is going to sound, he's getting very old now. And I don't think, I mean, I think it works out that he'd be 79 or 80 by the time he was inaugurated. And I don't think that's going to wash very well with the American people. I, I'm terrible at making at making predictions, but I think he um, I think he does stand a good chance because it's part of this narrative of people rejecting you know traditional politics and people wanting to find someone who more um, who who looks more like what they look like. Um, and I th you know so long as Trump continues basically just being himself, I think that alone commands enough respect amongst a lot of uh, amongst a lot of voters in America. They feel like he's more normal. He's more he's a normal person rather than a politician. Um, and I think that's what people are after these days. Um, we've seen it all across the world, but I think, you know, particularly in America, um, I, I think that that command that will command a lot of support in 2020. And I don't all his opponents or the prospective opponents in 2020 aren't really that different from Hillary. They're all sort of, you know, suited and booted. They all play it straight down the line. They don't they're not they're not real personalities, I feel. Um, and I think just by by being himself, Trump just stands a real chance of doing exactly the the same to them as he did to Hillary. Yeah, I mean, I hope in my heart of hearts that he doesn't. Um, Me too. But <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to Brexit, which is another cheery topic for everybody. Mm. Um, how are you all feeling about that? Any optimism today? Um, not from me, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I am, I am pro Remain, but at this point, so I'm getting to the point where that I'm actually just despairing uh, how much. Not only this has divided our country, but also to how much, how low the level of debate has sunk. Um, you know, like there are genuine discussions around the relative merits of being in the EU to be had. Um, quite interesting discussions, but you do, we don't we don't get to them because the people's first port of call just seems to be either to insult the the um, the opponent or to claim that their opponent is acting in bad faith. You know, Brexiters aren't all racist, and Remainers aren't all part of some elite conspiracy. But we just, but that's all we get to hear. There's actually no debate about the relative merits of of being in the EU as there wasn't in 2016. And to be honest, at the minute, it's hard to see a way out, isn't it? Because the country is just as divided as ever. 
you imagine pro-Remain parties and the Brexit party are both going to do pretty well in the European elections. So this never-ending cycle of will we, won't we, is just going to go on and on and on and on. And all the while, there are so many issues, you know, all around the country that need solving that May, just because of her complete, you know, one-track mind, um, can't focus on. She can only do the Brexit thing. And despite the fact that every single time she brings it before Parliament, her deal goes down like a cup of cold sick. She just does it over and over again. And uh, I can't see any way out. I do mostly agree. I mean, we've been rambling on and on and on about Brexit for over two and a half years now. And we don't seem to have actually got anywhere. You know, we do have actually really quite big problems to, to tackle. And whilst Parliament is so obsessed with sorting out Brexit and Theresa May is refusing to stand down. Then we're just going to be stuck there at that impasse. Michael Alston, the UN Special Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, when he came to the UK last year, he he had quite he made quite a damning report, and that seems to have pretty much gone under the radar. No one seems to really be thinking about it, despite the fact that can't remember the exact number, but it's an awful lot of millions who the UN predicts will be living in but children who will be living in poverty by 2020 to 2021. Well, you know, let's talk about the EU some more because that seems to be the only thing that we can have a good argument about. I think one of the things as well as to why it's dragging on is because there are actually quite a lot of politicians in Westminster who are, are literally having the time of their careers. They're getting more time on television than they've ever had before and they will ever enjoy ever again. You know, the likes of, so, you know, you've got Steve Baker and uh, Andrew Bridgen and Mark Francois on the Brexit side, but, you know, also the likes of Anna Soubry on the Rain side. They, these people are all enjoy a complete resurgence in their careers. And you sort of get the feeling that, you know, you, you, there's a saying, isn't there, that uh, politics is, is, at, is showbiz for ugly people. And you kind of, you know, deep down, a lot, a lot of these people, I think, quite enjoy being at the centre of attention, you know, getting the feeling that they get to decide the country's fate, making a stand. And I think that's part of the reason why it's carrying on, because some of these people, I don't think, actually particularly want it to move on. Arguably, there are many members of the Conservative Party who have been accused of seeking attention, but their position as a party has declined dramatically in recent months. Before we discuss how the political parties have fared since September, who would you have voted for this time last year? To be honest, I'd probably spoil my ballot because okay. I think they're all just as absolutely useless as each other. Okay. And I don't particularly want to get too engaged or full on with them. But that hasn't changed now. I, I wouldn't now. And I certainly wouldn't have done last September. Okay. And has that got worse? Well, it, it, it seems to have got worse because now we have the traditional two-party system and then we've got all these new parties cropping up left, right and centre, but they're all shaping themselves around the model of we're either going to stop Brexit or we're going to make sure Brexit happens. And like we were talking about earlier, there are other problems to talk about, but they are literally one issue parties. Well, to answer your question, this time last year, I would have voted Lib Dem and felt pretty miserable about it. This time, well now, I would still vote Lib Dem and feel marginally more optimistic about it just on the basis of how well they did um in the local elections you know a real like an extraordinary resurgence really from a party that people pretty much thought were dead and buried and should you know some people were calling for them to fold and to merge with change uk but really they've actually shown change uk the way forward and shown them actually how how they should be doing it i think also um the other thing that's that's quite um heartening about 
the Lib Dems, from my perspective, um, is the bollocks to Brexit slogan, which is pretty much the best or the only slogan, decent one anyway, that the Remain sides have come up with um, since the referendum was announced. And it finally seems to be like somebody is getting um, is getting in gear and, you know, really taking the fight to the likes of Farage. So, yeah, I was I would have voted Lib Dem and I still will vote Lib Dem if, you know, when when as and when the opportunity arises. Um, but uh, as I say, I feel a lot more optimistic about it now than I did then. Yeah, so let's talk about the Lib Dems because yeah, they were the biggest winners in the local elections and they gained a net 11 councils. And so they now have 676 councillors, which is, you know, a lot, whereas Labour had a net loss of 63 seats. Um, and as we know, the Tories <laughs> lost more than 1,200. So, and me personally, I would have voted Labour this time last year. Um, but because of the way Labour have dealt with um, Brexit, I would now vote Lib Dem. The Lib Dems have stolen a lot of Labour's support because basically what the last, you know, since since September has shown us is that Labour's policy of sitting on the fence on Brexit isn't going to work for them um, because it's, I think fundamentally, they, they're acting as if the job of the opposition is to try and represent every single person in the country. And, you know, whilst you might want that to be the case, it's not really realistic. What they need to be doing is representing the people who aren't represented by government. And seeing as the government is, you know, pushing some sort of, you know, you might not like the Brexit agenda it's pushing, but it's pushing a Brexit agenda. The Labour really needed to be there for the 48% who didn't vote for Brexit. But they've obfuscated, they've been, you know, really shadowy. They haven't said what they what they mean. Um, and nobody's really clear what they think about it. So I think the Lib Dems are really capitalising on that because, you know, going back to the bollocks to Brexit slogan, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's, you know, it's about as funny as anything gets in politics, which is not very, but it's better than most. Uh, better than most slogans. It's to the point. It's quite. It's quite Trump or Farage-esque, um, and I think that you know it's, it's quite effective campaigning. And by doing that, combined with Labour's shortcomings, um, the reason the Lib Dems are doing quite well at the minute is because they they are just sustaining a lot of Labour support. And talking of uh, Labour's shortcomings, I mean, it's you know it's been in the news today that the talks between the Tories and Labour Party about Brexit have broken down and sources are citing that it is the fact that Labour don't have any internal coherent policy on Brexit, which is apparently the reason why these talks have broken down. So it's not looking very good for Conservatives or Labour. I feel most sorry for Labour, well, prospective Labour voters, because they really don't particularly, the you know, traditional idea of a Labour voter is working class. We don't really have a party that represents them or their interests uh, at the moment in British politics. These these negotiations between Labour and the Tories for some type of consensus on the Brexit deal was really just a PR exercise on both of them. And it has completely fallen apart. But we all, all of us know that within the next, I don't know, it might have already happened, somebody like John McDonnell or Barry Gardner will be saying, that's exactly what we wanted. It went our way. It was Theresa May's fault. It just so happens at this time Theresa May's team got there first. Yeah. But I I do think on the whole, it is most certainly Labour supporters that I feel most sorry for. Because at the moment they just they just want to get on with it. But but there is nobody who actually provides them with a voice. I think the issue with the Lib Dems and Change UK is that they are predominantly, at least in the media, made up of middle class voices. And that is something that really, you know, we working class people don't really like to listen to them that much, but they're not, um, they're not particularly, the, it just seems to be like an 
an anger directed at the Lib Dems and the Tories in Labour that nobody is actually here to unite. So you won't be voting for Change UK then, Daniel? No, I think I'll pass on that one. (laughs) I mean, if I have to watch another video of Joan Ryan telling us to turn over our hands or whatever it was that she was doing, I think I'd bang my head against a brick wall. What about you, Tom? What are your thoughts on Change UK? Is that still their name? Well, their Twitter handle is now for change now, which is right. not very good at all. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, the thing, I think the surprising thing about change is like just how bad they've been. I Because I wrote an article when they when the uh, Tiggers, as they then were, first split, basically saying how much I welcomed the move. You know, I thought it was brave. I thought it was something new. Um, and basically said, you know, if they now come up with some sort of policy platform, then this might be a force in British politics that a lot of people have, you know, can get behind. But, you know, we're months forward now and they just don't have, they don't have any policies um, other than saying, you know, politics is broken, let's change it, which doesn't really mean anything either. Um, they, they've just been, a, they've been a complete failure in marketing and in brand. Nothing about them is appealing. They are a lot of the old faces just with a less interesting logo. Um, I, I think, you know, people are saying how badly they're doing, you know, whatever they're polling, 5%. I think 5% is a miracle for them, given how, given just how bad they've been. The marketing was really bizarre. Do you remember when they were all sharing those um, pictures on Twitter of them going for a Nando's as if that was some sort of miraculous way that they would get the youth vote? (laughs) It was just weird, like just really weird tactics. Yeah, and it's a shame because I think they, you know, I do have a lot of time for, um, for Anna Subri, I interviewed her for Backbench a little while ago, and in, in, in an interview one-on-one, she came across really well. She came across as a proactive politician who wants to get things done, who was clear in what she believed, um, and, you know, you know, she's quite upstanding, but I, I just feel that, like, the brand isn't there for them, and it's not working. And I also think the, also, the other thing that they've done, which has been really bad, is basically focus all their attention on being the party of Remain voters, therefore targeting um, the Lib Dems and Labour to an extent, rather than focusing on who their actual opponents should be, which is, you know, the likes of May and Farage. The really depressing thing from a Remain voters point of view is that um, basically all the people who you might vote for are basically doing their best to destroy each other. Um, You know, I expect dislike the likes of Nigel Farage as a Remain voter. He, he's the opponent. I expect to disagree with him. But the most depressing thing is that I also don't find anything that I really like about the people who I would, you know, who I should be wanting to vote for. Daniel, if you had to choose somebody to vote for in the Europeans, who uh, who would you pick? Well, I think the European le- elections are a little bit different because I, bizarrely, despite what I've just said earlier, I would vote in them. Well, I will vote in them. Um, and I'll be voting for the Brexit party just because it's just I'm just a little bit sick of the whole thing really and like I've said multiple times before I think Brexit is a good idea and if it was just Nigel Farage and the usual suspects I probably wouldn't have done but there's a wider range of people from all across the political spectrum and that's enough to give me hope that voting for them won't be just a complete dos about that's the wrong word (laughs) I can't think of a better word does it does it (laughs) Does it concern you, Daniel, that the there's sort of there's some sort of implication from the Brexit Party that they would that they would want to get elected to the European Parliament in order to then disrupt it? I mean, from my you know, I understand that they're pro-Brexit, but from from my point of view, that seems like an extremely damaging thing to do in terms of Britain's you know international reputation. 
Well, no, not particularly. I mean, it's just that <laughs> this has two aspects to it. I mean, first of all, we don't really have an awfully big international reputation at the moment anyway. I, mean, I don't think. I don't think any single British party will be able to trash it any more than it already has been. <laughs> but in the same way, sometimes if you want something to be done, then there are certain tactics that people do indoors. It's not, I think we see it really, especially in this country with Sinn Féin refusing to take their seats in Westminster. I think it's two sides of the very same coin, not saying that Sinn Féin and the Brexit party share the same ideology obviously yeah. but i think that they, yeah quite a bit of a difference but i think that at the core it's the same type of tactics just expressed in a different way okay so by the same token it doesn't bother you that they don't have that the, the policy you know similar i guess to change uk that the the only policy is to leave on wto terms and that there's you know there's nothing else really to them well, there doesn't seem to be much a need for anything else, because at the end of the day, as soon as we've left the European Union, we will not be members of the European Parliament either. So I think I think this is the one time that I can comfortably vote for a single issue party. I'm guessing, Tommy, you won't be voting for the Brexit party. Well, no, I, I, a couple of months ago, I was really... Um, I really didn't know who I was going to vote for. I thought, you know, I was sort of toying with spoiling my ballot... And then it's basically a choice for me at this point between the Greens, uh, the Lib, De- Lib Dems and, you know, on possibly change. Um, I think I'm just going to have to see how sort of people are polling in my area, you know, towards election day and just vote for the Remainish party who I see uh, as, as as doing best in my area. Um, this is the real problem for Remain parties is that their vote is going to get split in a way that I think, you know, in a way that I think... Brexit voters' votes won't get split in this way. Um, I saw a stat earlier today, something like 62% of people who voted Tory in 2017 are now thinking of voting for the um, for the Brexit party. You know, huge, basically all Tory Brexit supporters are going towards the Brexit party, whereas for the Remain voters, you know, you've got you've basically got a choice of three slash four if you include Labour. So I think if you if like me, you're somebody who wants to, who doesn't want Brexit to happen, then you need to really need to see how you can concentrate the Remain vote as much as possible in your area. I'm going to talk about optimism now because I asked pretty much all the guests uh, throughout series one and two whether they were optimistic about the subject they were talking about, um, and I was very surprised and um, pleasantly surprised that most people said that they were optimistic. Um, but they did offer a caveat, you know, it was like, I'm optimistic if this happens or whatever. But still, um, optimism was there. Um, So how do you guys feel about the future? Are you just broadly not focusing on any issue? Would you say that you are optimistic or pessimistic? I mean, speaking really, really broadly, obviously, I think you have to be optimistic. You know, living standards are better than, you know, better than they've ever been. We're probably we're richer than we've ever been things generally get better with time I would you know if this is the best era to, to live in ever because things just incrementally get better and better over time so I mean that is a cause for optimism on the basis that that's going to continue for the foreseeable future obviously on on individual issues you know there isn't so much optimism because you seem to be in some sort of interminable cycle or people don't seem to listen to what the real problems are we seem to be regressing in some respects I mean the return of the anti-vax movement is just unbelievably um, depressing. But, you know, how's, how, how has that come back? Um, 
but I think you know if if you want if you want to end your time as a as podcast editor on a uh, on a happy note, Natasha, I think that generally <laughs> speaking, like you know the way the world goes, things tend to get better as time moves on, um, and we can hope and keep our fingers crossed that that, that carries you know that that continues to be the case. But then if you are, you know, a uh, activist for Extinction Rebellion, you would say this is the worst time to ever be living because, you know, the climate is about to explode. Well, um, well that, that is one way of looking at it. But the other way is thinking that awareness of the environmental issue has probably never been so high as it is now. And agreement with um, climate scientists that we need to do something about it has also never been so high. Um, you know, it seems to me that the message is finally, finally getting across that uh, something needs to be done, um, and it's finally filtering through into into the political, into you know, actual politicians. Um, so obviously, you know, we we need to act very swiftly, but at the same time, we're for the first time I think ever, we're probably in a position where everyone knows that we need to do something, um, and so you know that 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 is a cause for optimism as well. I just said I agree, but uh, I felt so sad at the end of the interview with Sam Knights, who was the Extinction Rebellion guy, because he was he felt like he was doing something, but he just you know he wasn't confident that it would be enough. But the environment is definitely something we're at least talking about, so that's definitely cause for optimism. Uh, what about you, Daniel? Yeah, I must admit, even for me, the um, the Extinction Rebellion group are a little bit too pessimistic because th- they seem to be talking in a very deterministic way that, you know, we are all going to die very shortly because the planet's going to melt or explode or whatever. I can't profess to be know an awful lot about climate change science. But I, overall, though, I would say I'm mostly optimistic which might come as a surprise, because I think really we do seem to be heading on some form of trajectory. And I don't think all the disasters that people keep predicting will happen, which is something that has happened throughout history. We always predict something terrible is going to happen. I don't think it's going to be that bad, really. And at the end of the day, people do seem to start, people are starting to remember that politics is and protest is not all there is which i think is always a sign that we should be optimistic about something what about brexit oh (laughs) uh... (laughs) i'm not trying Uh, to end this on a negative note i i I know i thought i tried so hard then as well um daniel you sound unbelievably wearied by was it a year now of editing Brexit articles? <laughs> yeah, there are, yeah, I've I've not really had a day without having to think about it. <laughs> I mean, for, I, I, you know what? I honestly don't know. I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Do you think May will be gone by a uh, by party conference? God, I hope so. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Unless her deal passes in due at the start of June, which you know, that's probably the that 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 is not going to happen but if it was to happen then i feel like she's going to hang on and then over summer it would be very difficult for mps to get rid of her just because nobody's going to be about and then we'll speed up to september and it'll just be too there won't be enough time to get rid of her however i do think by then she will be gone we might have a situation like when david cameron stepped down and by summer we've got a new prime minister so generally we're we're optimistic as a group we can say that Cautiously yes. optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. Backbench is cautiously optimistic. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> Here now with more news, debate, and opinion.